We are live. <laughs> live. Yeah. Everybody thinks we've died. It's been two months. Well, you know, these things take research and uh, painstaking, detailed uh, following the trail, you know. Yeah. Well, you, you choose all the hardest books and, I'm, you know, I'm appreciative of that. I think this book we're going to talk about next is pretty challenging. It's a polemical book. Kind of like that. We're kind of polemical ourselves. We, we appreciate that. It's very, it's very difficult. I mean, all this balance of payment stuff, I wasn't, I didn't feel very comfortable talking about it until doing a lot more reading. And so, yeah. um, and some of the stuff, the, some of the ways they write is kind of confusing too. So parsing all of it is a detailed uh, endeavor. Yeah. So maybe we should talk, we should, we should say who we're talking about today. Oh, Klein and Pettis's Trade Wars or Class Wars. Um, right. How Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. Yeah, so over the last two months, we've been really digging into this book. It's challenging, it's thoughtful, polemical, like I said. It led us down kind of a rabbit hole, like most of the books we read, they, they all do this, but we went down the rabbit hole of reading on imperialism again, so we went back to some classics, Lenin's classic on imperialism, and uh, the highest, centrally... The highest stage of capitalism. <laughs> Right, or is it, or is it the last, or is it the last stage? Yeah, we we don't know. I mean, a lot of things in capitalism has have happened since then. So I think we can we can say it wasn't the last. But more centrally to this book, I think uh, what we wanted to look at was the the piece that Lenin drew from that Pettis and Klein also draw from in large part, which is J. A. Hobson's imperialism. And um, I I don't think it's uh, unfair to say that Pettis and Klein are both. Hobsonian in a sense, right? I mean, they both are very, um, they, they stick to the script of this book. Um, and centrally in its argument that inequality drives tensions between mm-hmm. nations. Um, you know, the inequality within nations creates the imbalances, the trade imbalances that create tensions with, uh, between nations. And, and that's, I think, the, the center of its polemic. And that it's it's putting forward this point about inequality and really driving home a concept and a political point of view that's been predominant over the last 10 years, I think. And really making an economic argument as to how inequality plays a role in driving these rivalries. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an important book in that sense and in clarifying. And you could say like Hobson, their central analytic is the role of underconsumption over saving as a um, source of um, inequality within certain countries that drives um, the need to seek investments elsewhere and also sell goods elsewhere. That's right. Yeah. So that's what we've been doing for the last couple months is really digging into this book. We're going to do a full reconstruction to the extent that we can over the next few episodes. We're going to talk about this book, Trade Wars or Class Wars. We're going to take a look at Hobson, Lenin. There are a couple of other books that uh, I think Mario, you're going to get into primarily on, I think it's Stephen Brooks. Stephen um, Brooks and um, a few other people, but, um, you know, we'll do that after Pettis. But the, the main um, impetus for that was to really look at the ways in which um, this latest phase of globalization with the dispersal of supply chains around the world actually changes or makes more complex the um, arguments of people who think that uh, economic interdependence is a force for peace in the world and also I think makes a little bit more complex the 
the realist retort that we've often, you know, um, echoed and we, we've we found pretty convincing that the expansion of trade and trade interdependence before World War One was, you know, steadily increasing and was um, more than it was in much of the much of the second half of the 20th century before World War One. So that I've, since since having you know said that in previous episodes, I found that the realist camp, say Lane or Mearsheimer, are using a kind of uh, paradigm that doesn't take into account the this dispersal of supply chains in contemporary capitalism and the ways in which that not only changes the sort of incentive of states to think about going to war and capturing territory and industrial capacity from other places, but also the way in which their behavior requires them, or rather the international market requires them to be able to acquire the investment and research and development and technology that's on, that's only available through world trade. And so doing, you know, either pursuing a, a, um, you know, uh, an aggressive policy towards their neighbors or following an autarkic industrial policy doesn't allow them to, to, to have access to the highest levels of R&D and investment. And, and so too, in terms of the, you know, interstate rivalry aspect of it, it doesn't allow them to have access to the highest levels of research and development in weapons technology. And so that has a particular change, I think, and, and we'll follow this in later episodes, a kind of, it makes a little bit more complex the realist, that realist retort such that, you know, major great, our great powers um, have to consider that before they break away from the world market. I thought I'd just ask you for listeners, um, since it might seem like we're taking a bit of a detour from the last discussion on Mabubani, this really isn't a detour. We we decided to run with a discussion on Pettus and Klein because we think it's a nice complement to some of the ideas and arguments that Mabubani raised. And of course, the main one is that Mabubani registered this tremendous rise of China and its leap into global manufacturing. And there there is this sense in Mabubani that perhaps China has one. He came down pretty optimistically, I think, on this question of China having one. And I mm-hmm. think we kind of are making a course correction as we've as we've dived a little deeper into the macroeconomic questions that Pettis and Klein raise, and also some of these questions of supply chains that you've talked about. So I thought maybe you could just say a few words of why we're talking about Pettis and Klein in light of our broader discussion on the China-U.S. rivalry. Yeah, I think that when we did the the Mabubani book, we were kind of like um, fanboys, totally agreeing with <laughs> a large part of his argument. And that, that part of the argument we agreed with was that um, China's made these tremendous strides forward in terms of social and economic development and in this industrial policy also agreed with him that the United States has a lot of dysfunction in its society, its political and its political system. Um, we didn't agree with him about certain kind of, you know, cultural explanations for why China won't be, won't follow realist imperatives to, to um, push back against the United States in the first island chain. And you could say that episodes after Mabubani were our, our first attempts to kind of course correct in terms of that. And we, we brought into into our account or into discussion, Mearsheimer's retort to uh, Mabubani, in which he said, you know, none of that, none of that, that sort of stuff guarantees that China is going to be able to become a regional hegemon and talked about the sort of parameters in which the, the um, competition between the United States and China is likely to lead to conflict in Southeast Asia sooner rather than later. So now we're trying to sort of flesh out more of the, um, 
yeah, global macroeconomic dynamics that are, you could say, leading to a um, change in power relations in this latest age of globalization. I could say we're trying to give a Lenin-Hobson kind of understanding of how, you know, the global environment is not a world in which, despite all of the economic interdependence, it's not a world in which, you know, the, in which the world is flat, like Thomas Friedman said. There's a huge amount of, you know, inequalities between nations and inequality within nations that are driving um, rivalry and conflict. And um, yeah, that's basically where we're, we're going to try to go with this. So we have some news also before we get started on some of the concepts on Hobson, Lenin, how they're relevant to this book, Trade Wars or Class Wars by Pettis and Klein. We just want to let listeners know that uh, we've gotten a little more serious with this thing. And we we <laughs> we launched a Twitter. <laughs> you know, big deal. Our Twitter is after underscore history. So you can follow us there. Follow uh, mostly Mario's sweet tweets. They're pretty uh, <laughs> snarky. They're snarky tweets. The snarky ones are me and the uh, the uh, straightforward ones are Tom. Well, mostly just me apologizing for our delays while we're taking so yeah. many notes on these books. But I, I made but, fun of H.R. McMaster recently. Did you? Yeah. I didn't even see that one. Oh, it was good. I said he read something about the, you know, retreating from Afghanistan that, you know, I, I can't remember what he said exactly, but it, it didn't make sense. And I said word salad. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I did see that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really was word salad. It was, it was. not. Yeah. But uh, you can check us out there. We're also starting a website which will expand this project a little bit. It's hawksandsparrows.com. Hawks and sparrows, not and sparrows. We couldn't afford and sparrows, unfortunately. No. So hawksandsparrows.com. It's our storehouse for our written projects. You can check out our reading programs. The podcasts are stored there as well. We'll be launching that in the next few weeks. But for right now, um, you can continue to follow us here, um, you know, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff, um, mm -hmm. and Twitter as well. So check us out there, after underscore history, and look forward to the launch of our website, hawksandsparrows.com. It's a great name, I think. I don't know if our, our listeners think that, but it's got an Aesopian uh, sort of allegorical aspect to it that, that appeals to our, our realist sensibilities, I think. Yeah. I mean, shout out to Pasolini, man. Uh, he stole that from one of his movies. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was, a, it was an easy sell for me. Not, not, not one of the more enjoyable films by Pasolini. And in my opinion, very few of his films are that enjoyable to watch, although they're, they're great, but you know, wow. I'm often, wow. I'm okay. often, I'm often like, okay, where is this? Uh, I don't know. Where's this going? <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, we didn't get uh, a chance to really introduce Pettis and Klein, but I just want to say a few words about who they are. They wrote this book last year, 2020, and came out. It's been highly acclaimed, I'd say, from different camps. You know, the reviews that I've seen range uh, across the political spectrum, and uh, even those who disagree with it in large part respect what it's trying to do and taking this, you know, uh, fresh look at how inequality drives trade imbalances. And I think this is a really important point because it gets it gets the relationship right between internal domestic policy and how that drives, um, how that reverberates across uh, the interstate system, as opposed to these interstate conflicts, you know, national enmities or, you know, this 
this clash of civilizations driving inequality. So you get this like labor bureaucratic kind of in the United States, this labor bureaucrat kind of perspective where China's stealing all of America's jobs. And, and they, they don't, they're not pushing forward this kind of labor bureaucrat protectionist point of view. They're saying actually that there's so much inequality being driven in the United States and in China has actually opened up a common point of interest between American workers and Chinese workers, which I think is a nice shot in the arm to this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, left liberal labor bureaucrat perspective. Matthew Klein is, uh, he's, he's a writer at Barron's. I think he writes elsewhere. Um, mm-hmm. a journalist who covers finance and economics. And Michael Pettis, the co-writer, is a uh, professor of finance at Peking University. Um, so they, they both bring a very unique point of view to their, uh, to this book from their respective disciplines. As I said before, the, you know, the, the main thesis I think is captured succinctly in the book, which is trade war is often presented as a conflict between countries. It is not. It is a conflict mainly between bankers and owners of financial assets on one side and ordinary households on the other between the very rich and everyone else. As we said before, the book draws heavily from um, J.A. Hobson, who is a British economist, wrote a very influential and famous book, 1902, called Imperialism. And um, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, Lenin himself drew from in 1916 when he published his own imperialism. Uh, Hobson was not a Marxist in any sense. Um, I think his his view on ha- what drives imperialism was largely informed by um, the the impact that the Boer War had on his political thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he became a member of the Labor Party or the Independent Labor Party at some point in his life. And he's really made, I think, uh, a comeback in some sense intellectually through this book in a positive sense. There was some discussion about him earlier in the last couple of years around Corbyn and the Labor Party. Um, I believe Corbyn wrote an introduction to imperialism that came out. Oh, really? Um, yeah, in like 2011 or 12. And this was kind of the, you know, people have looked back on this like as recently as 2019 and around some of this, you know, anti-Semitism in the Labor Party. Ah, uh, I see. You know, some of that stuff saying, oh, you know, look at who they are making reference to. Mm-hmm. This, you know, anti-Semite, uh, Jay Hobson, made reference to the Rothschilds and the influence of uh, finance and driving imperialism. Yeah. So. And this, Mike, it's funny you yeah. say that because in the Michael Lind review of uh, Trade Wars or Class Wars, he zeroes in on that aspect in uh, in his review of it in American Affairs. You know, I think it is probably the case that Hobson did have a did have some anti-Semitism. You can, and from what I've read of imperialism, there's a, a slight touch of it in terms of emphasizing the Rothschild and and emphasizing emphasizing the um, the deterritorialized nature of. Jewish finance, the fact that and, and yeah. ties that to the idea of manipulating national resources and stuff like that. It is a heavy anti-Semitism in the sense of what would come later with the Nazis, but it's definitely a, a, a an emphasis on this financial kind of control aspect, which isn't ne- isn't untrue in its just broader sociological in- instinct, but focusing on Jews isn't necessarily the right way to yeah, go. Right, exactly. And it's important to disentangle the book from that and and highlight the insights that Pettis and Klein draw from it, which is at the level of trade imbalances and what materially advanced capitalist countries have to do with their surplus capital. And and I think, um, you know, I want to pass it over to you, Mario, and, and just give our listeners a sense of how Hobson is drawn from in this book mm-hmm. and really 
uh, I think the intellectual pivot around which their arguments about inequality and trade imbalances are made. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that Pettis and Klein are, are economists, right? And so what they really focus on is the um, economic analytic insight that is the core of Hobson's argument, which is that um, underconsumption and oversaving um, drive a type of imperial, um, well, in Hobson's case, a sort of imperial national foreign policy that is geared more towards guaranteeing a rate of return on foreign investments that are that are driven by this, you know, um, oversaving in the domestic in the domestic uh, realm, right? Mm-hmm. Pettis and Klein, right, are you know using that as a, as a kind of launching pad for um, looking at um, global balance of payments and um, disequilibria related to all those things, and really bring out of their picture in a lot of ways interstate rivalry and the um, concerns about imperialism and and military conflict or interstate um, competition between the United States and China, which is more of our focus, right? Mm-hmm. But um, Hobson himself was much more of a, you could say his writing is much more sort of politically inflected. You could say that Hobson is the sort of a kind of like high point of late 19th, 19th century liberalism's attempt to acquire a kind of sociological analytic to understand the the causes of this more reactionary jingoistic politics tied to imperialism. Um, so this sort of involution of laissez-faire capitalism with this the, under the realities of a kind of more rapacious economic competition of uh, monopolies and cartels tied to, um, you know, the foreign policies of increasingly um, antagonistic great powers. So that's much more Hobson's focus than the way that um, Klein and Pettis represent him. The um, and, and as you mentioned before, right, he, he, he sort of um, cut his teeth writing about the Boer War, which was a um, which was, you know, really made possible by an article he had written previously in the 1890s, I think, Imperialism, which mm-hmm. caught the caught the attention of a um, another um, very famous late 19th century liberal, L.T. Hobhouse, who who I think made arranged for him to be hired by the Guardian to cover the Boer War. And then that became one of his books, um, his coverage of that. He's really taking a look at the sort of transformation of a previous period of British colonialism that set up, tended to set up more, you know, white settler, but self-governing colonies that kind of had a, ex, that helped expand British dominions in a way that also um, facilitated increasing trade and absorption of British exports um, in a sort of more healthy way, you could say, for economically speaking, than this latest phase of imperialism, which is what he's focusing on. So for Hobson, there's this, you know, he, he doesn't, um, you know, he's not entirely like, you know, sanguine or whatever about that previous period, but he does recognize that it was more economically beneficial for the entirety of the British economy to expand in those places, Australia, Canada, and hold those dominions. It was better for you know Britain, um, economically speaking, because the, it, they absorbed more of Britain's exports, whereas he's looking at this later period in which the um, you could say the, the, in the scramble for Africa and the scramble to acquire more protectorates um, are not yielding the same um, absorption of British exports, and so he's questioning 
what is the cost benefit analysis of the amount of public resources that are being dedicated and military armaments and stuff that are being dedicated to securing these protectorates when they're not really absorbing British exports at the same level as these previous colonies, right? And um, his answer to that is going to basically be, well, it's a particular sector of capitalists. It's, you know, capitalists that are invested in armaments, ex- certain export trades, infrastructure, like railroads, and the colonial officialdom who, and, and also, you know, probably certain infrastructure uh, investors in railroads, especially. Those are the sectors that have the biggest sort of, you know, interest in expanding um, investments there, right? That this is a, you know, you could say an important move that, you know, you can, we can see in many Marxist analyses thereafter um, and, and other analyses of imperialism that it's a, that it's a particular class, a particular sector of the capitalist class that's in, that's interested in this, right? Mm-hmm. And that they use and um, attempt to um, control the, the national state, right? to conduct foreign policy, you know, towards ends that are beneficial to them, not the capitalist class as a whole necessarily. Right. And, and maybe that's, that's an important segue. I know that there's more you want to say about Hobson, but I think it's important to note now that this, I think is one of the central insights that Lenin took, you know, uh, almost 15 years later in his own imperialism, where he mentions, and he really emphasizes finance capital and the age of monopoly capitalism. So would you agree with that? That's the central influence that Hobson had on Lenin's own thought? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you could say that you could say it's that it's this sort of idea that, um, you know, certain sectors of, you know, the manufacturing um, and monopolistic kind of classes have an interest in imperialism, but also that um, an investor class um, who operate through finance that um, have the key interests in um, in imperialism, and also tied to that is, and this is what Lenin most you could say, Lenin appreciates that, and also appreciates this about Hobson, which is that Hobson recognizes that the this um, this you know drive to acquire more protectorates in a competitive fashion with other states, even though it's not, it doesn't seem to be as economically. Um, you know, efficient or viable as the previous era of colonialism, that this is driving an antagonism between states that just that is irrational, you could say, and is is going to drive states, um, makes states more likely to, to go to war. And 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 you could say Lenin against Kotsky recognizes at least Hobson is better than Kotsky because he he recognizes this is driving an antagonism. Right, and and maybe it's important just quickly to review the polemic against Kotsky, which is on the question of ultra-imperialism and the ability of nations to have some kind of, in this rivalry, some kind of super cop that would smooth out the edges of this rivalry and limit competition between them. And Lenin says, no, actually, the age of monopoly capitalism, there is a there is an a inevitable conflict between nations and protection of national interests that cannot be smoothed over. And it's actually much closer to the realism that we talk about today. Mm-hmm. And in Lenin's view, this conflict between monopoly interests and the imperialist era would lead inevitably to world war. And that was borne out by facts at the time. I mean, he's writing that in the midst of the First World War. And, and it's funny, it, Kotsky's writing in the midst of the First World War, too, just to give it its 
not necessarily it's credit, but it's proper, you know, it's, it's correct context is that he's recognizing that there's war, right? But he's saying that like more rationally conducted, more rationally conducted, a, right? There would be yeah. a, a, a kind of um, an ultra imperialist kind of control center, right? Right, right. There could be no policy according to Lenin that could create a more rational interstate system. Right. In fact, imperialism is not a policy, but a natural outgrowth of capitalism in its monopoly form. Right. It is and, an outgrowth, a natural outcome of competition between firms, between national firms in the interstate order. Right. And, you know, and you could, and also, you know, throughout our previous episodes, especially when we we're talking about Perry Anderson's book, we were trying, we were sort of, you know, I, I think reflecting on the way in which the United States in certain respects is, has perhaps fit the mold of this Kotsky and ultra imperialist force because it represents <laughs> right. the capitalist interests as a whole. Um, of different nations. And I mean, of course, one of the things that makes this, even this notion that I'm expressing possible is the, is the tremendous amount of military power the United States has over and above all other states, which is, it has enjoyed since the end of World War II. And you could say because of that, it doesn't necessarily, it, it's, it's, it's sort of difficult to test the degree to which it's an ultra imperialist state by virtue of a, um, pure economic rationality. I mean, they have to, they have to, um, allow the United States to assume the, that role, right? Because the United States is the most powerful and, and it chooses to represent the, the interests of other capitalist nations as a whole. And, and one of the, you can, yeah. you know, some people, some people might be cynical about that idea that like that's not the case. But if you look at the role of, you know, manufacturing in other major capitalist countries and how it's undercut the United States and its direct economic interests, you could, you can sort of see how, the U.S. has ma- has has tried to maintain that general interest of the whole economic, the protection of the whole world economic, uh, whole world capitalist system. Right. I think you know after seventy years, right, since the end of the first, uh, the Second World War, we're starting to see these rivalries that you know you would expect ultra imperialism to smooth out are now rearing their ugly head again. And I think the, um, you know, we'll talk about this more in our next episode, but the, the chickens are coming home to roost on the open door, I think. I think what I want to talk about next is how this, what can we take from Lenin's insights into these inevitable conflicts on imperialist basis to learn from the China-U.S. rivalry? So you're asking, like, what is, uh, what can we take from Lenin for today, considering the fact that he's talking about inter-imperialist rivalry and we're talking yeah. about um U- us uh, and, and you could say the whole capitalist system perhaps against china when the debate is still open as to which as to whether china is imperialist i mean in the way that lenin understood it i mean obviously there's there's an important in, uh, case that china has major infrastructural investments around the world and, and that was a a definite aspect of late 19th, early 20th century imperialism as a sort of way in which, you know, firms could get a higher rate of return by setting up the infra, being responsible for setting up infrastructure and colonies and, um, and such. But, um, we will have a chance to definitely debate this in further episodes. But what can we get from Lenin? I mean, it's basically the issue of whether or not the scramble for access and control of, of, the management of those in, of those investments around the world will drive states to go to war. That's right. Right. I mean, that's that's the basic analytic that one wants to follow. And 
you know, it's it's the opposite or the um, converse of what the the cel- those who celebrated globalization argued, right? It's 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 not the case that the world is flat, but that it's full of inequalities that states rise and and fall in stature. But in the case with China, because it's unwilling to be completely open to the west to the west to the rest of the global capitalist system it won't you know its rise in economic uh importance and economic power won't go the way of a state like japan i'm you know in the 80s people were all, right in the 80s people were freaking out about japan taking over the world because of its production of electronics and semiconductors and stuff i think and uh that in no way bore itself out but in the case of china which um wants to maintain you know, both control of its state and isn't willing to open itself up and become a liberal democracy. That's, it's much, it's, it poses, uh, it stands to be a much more formidable adversary, uh, power, yeah. adversary to the U.S. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about Pettus and Klein directly as it relates to this question, right? Because the, interestingly to me, this isn't your run of the mill American take on economics vis-a-vis China and the U.S., in which it's calling for democratization in China directly. It's another one of those books, and I think that's one reason why we like it on this show, is that it's not, you know, it's not Marco Rubio. It's not, you know, it's not every, you know, uh, anti-communist, bloodthirsty politician, Republican and Democratic Party calling for regime change or anything like that or democratization. In fact, it's, it's much more at the level of a program, a social democratic program that is of common interest, I think, to American workers in the Rust Belt, in the for, you know, in former industrialized part of the country, and Chinese workers who are, uh, you know, let's be fair, the wages are suppressed in favor of driving this surplus and in investment to sustain what what is really tremendous growth rates over the last twenty years. So I, I think we should talk a little bit about their program and. How it might differ, you know, again, going back to Lenin from the Leninist conception of what um, this interstate rivalry will lead to eventually. Because if you look at Pettus and Klein, I think what they're trying to avoid ultimately is this, uh, these conflicts, you know, at the level of trade imbalances becoming, um, you know, uh, uh, blowing up and becoming um, the, the ignition for another world war. They think there's an economic solution to these rivalries that I think might be uh, there. There, you know, you can make an argument against from a political point of view. I.e., they might actually ignore an important political factor here that we would take uh, influence from in the realist camp. So, can you can you tell us a little bit about what their conclusions are from you know just giving this high level view of how they draw from Hobson, their view of inequality and its contributions to rivalry? What would you say their program is for a solution? Well, I think um, their basic program is an attempt to. Well, for, on the one hand, you know, let's say let's take a look at their their um, criticism of China. Mm-hmm. As you as you point out, it's not that they think China should become a liberal democracy. I don't think they say that in any place in the book. Um, they might believe they're a, that they're but, not opposed to it. But right, right, but not. that's not their 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 major their major sticking point. What they what they instead say is that China needs to. Um, redistribute higher wages to um, Chinese workers. And, you know, despite the fact that China has had this, you know, has had this tremendous achievement of bringing hundreds of millions out of poverty, their their model of economic growth and development has been export-led, which means keeping consumption down 
so that goods will be sold abroad and that they can have Chinese firms have high rate of savings that can then be reinvested into treasury bonds. And we'll get into all that stuff in other oh, episodes. Yeah. But The real but fun the, stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the basic idea that Pettis and Klein have is that these um, export countries, and they especially look at Germany and China, need to redistribute higher wages to to um, buoy consumption in their own countries in order to begin to start to rebalance trade between between countries. That's one side of what they argue for. The other side is that I think they have a kind of they have a conception of a global redistribution regime that doesn't really exist in any way now, but that they think is basically what is at the fore what needs to be done, what is in, you could say on the horizon of the future as the more rational way to um, to handle economic inequality in globalized in our global uh, global globalized era, you could say we, we we really do live in like you know full globalization in a lot of ways because of the way that production is you know dispersed all over the world and intermediate forms of products are sold at are you know transported to different countries and and stuff like that. So we'll get into that when we talk about the the book in more detail. But you could say that is their their you could say a kind of their conception of a type of social democratic reform at the global level kind of idea. I would suspect that you're somewhat suspicious of this view, right? Because it, it, we understand that this call for a kind of an international, um, you know, surveyor or regulator over these questions is highly idealistic and, and maybe out of the question. They point Mm to um, Keynesianism, right? And some of um, Keynes's ideas on uh, regulating the world market. But what is your what is your take on this? You know, I think you called it social democratic approach to a, a, a political program. I mean, we'll have to get into it. Um, I mean, I obviously am very cynical and skeptical of it because of the way that um, political elites are, ba- especially in this country, operate. I mean, the idea of them ceding authority to a global a, a global body that's going to um, you know, redistribute their their um, incomes according to which countries are you know sort of have the most maladjusted you know polities or, or society because of their um, relationship to the to the world market um, is um, I, I don't expect to happen anytime soon. Um, but you know, if you just look at the behavior of states through coronavirus and through um, through the attempt to handle global warming. I think in some respects, China is better than the United States in terms of global warming, not in terms of how much emissions it has, but in terms of its readiness to adapt and to um, come to agreements with countries about it. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it in other episodes because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to um, sell them short because I don't recall all the details of it, but um, obviously I'm skeptical of it. Yeah, so Trade Wars or Class Wars by Pettis and Klein. Um, We really wanted to just give an introductory overview of what they're drawing from intellectually. Again, we have J.A. Hobson here. Um, You know, implicitly we have Lenin, or at least we wanted to get the discussion on Lenin back involved here because what we're interested in is the U.S.-China rivalry on a military interstate level. So as we get into the book, though, we're really going to take a look at – how they discuss these questions of imbalances, trade imbalances, uh, from a macroeconomic standpoint and put it in its historical context, right? So, Mario, I think you you have a lot in store for us on containerization and 
uh, whole host of questions. Uh, yeah. So in, in our next episode, right, we're going to, um, yeah, we'll, t- we'll go through basically the first three chapters of Klein and Pettis, which deal with on the, you know, the first chapter is a kind of quick history of the conditions of globalization. So that's, um, you know, the um, opening up of international finance, containerization as the sort of basic infrastructure of globalization, which, you know, makes possible a whole um, host of things from um, much cheaper transport of goods in intermediate goods. The, you know, obviously the um, ease of information flows that allows for integration of all these different components into global production. And then um, a great part about the book is its focus on the, the, the role of tax evasion in um, this, this, this phase of globalization. Basically, you know, the, the countries that are higher up on a value, on the value chain, as they say, for um, producing, say, a good or, or that are part of a company's infrastructure will have their um, intellectual property come from a, a location, you know, a subsidiary in a, in a place that has a um, very low tax rate or is it itself a tax haven. And then all of that is a big part of the whole company, the whole corporate accounting structure. And that, that's a, that, that is a major sort of f- um, force for this blossoming of, of <laughs> yeah. global of global of global production in our era, basically, and they do a great job of you know th- you know both through that and you know other aspects of um, their account really um, drive home the point that you know the the imbalances are not driven by as you were saying before Chinese people ta- Chinese workers taking our jobs, but you know rich people the 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 elites in our country relocating those jobs elsewhere. And, you know, screwing us over and giving the pittance of cheaper goods to us as, as a remedy, basically. And that, that's, dri- and that's driven more by, um, you know, an attempt to get a higher rate of return elsewhere after the United States has reached a certain level of social and economic development. And, um, you know, our generation and people after can expect a diminution of that because of this arrangement. And much of it and much of the incentive for that is this tax haven um, sort of structure that they, they focus on. Yeah, imperialism, capitalism in the age of tax scheming. Exactly. And then they, they have a good, um, and then the next chapter is a history of glo- sort of global finance from the 19th century to today. We won't take, we won't bore our listeners with all that, but their, you know, their central argument is that, you know, global finance is not driven by, um, by, um, you know, capital funds going to the places that have the best rate of return in a totally rational way. Instead, they're driven by, you know, low interest rates and the expansion of credit in core, in core countries, say London or New York, that, you know, sort of drive money sloshing around. And while it's, they they take it and they take the reader from the 19th century to today, to today. And while the 19th century wasn't as, you know, sort of unwieldy and, and, um, and um, sort of free-floating as things are today, they track this dynamic. And um, then the last chapter we'll talk about in the next episode is the third one on basically balance of payments as an analytic. So looking at current account and financial account as a way to understand trade imbalances. And that should round out the, the next episode. We'll try to present it as like concisely as and um, straightforwardly as possible. It's it's pretty difficult. So um, bear with us. It. Yeah, bear with us. Take out your pencil and, and paper and take notes. Yeah, and uh, Mario, 
Happy what? 420, man. Happy 420, bro. <laughs> I didn't even realize. That's funny. I just yeah, I man. just get high talking to you, you know? That's yeah. that's that's what it's all about for me. I have that effect on people, you know. Yeah. Well, dude, it's been uh it's been a long time. I'm glad we were able to get this out and um if you like what you're hearing or you don't uh like if you don't just beware uh and you tweet at after underscore history, you might get some snarky responses. But if you like what you hear, make sure you, you know, do all the stuff you're supposed to do, like uh, tweet it out, subscribe, whatever. Uh and thank you. After the end of history, episode 19. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 20 on Pettison Klein's Trade Wars or Class Wars. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.